Powers and Brandon Tullis are on uh, a mission trip to Idaho right now, and so we lift them up. Uh, I think Powers was helping to lead worship in, at Calvary Baptist this morning. Uh, their pastor, Brother Matt Magookin, and his wife, Marty, uh, they have three children. Their youngest one, Noah, uh, got a kidney transplant yesterday. And so we lift up Noah in our prayers and Matt and Marty as they are there. I think they're in Salt Lake City uh, with, that, uh, with, with Noah. And I think that, that everything is going good with Noah. And so we're thankful for him and thankful for this kidney uh, that was given to him. But that's where Powers and Brandon are. And so uh, we got to have, um, we got to have uh, John Chandler and Joseph Chandler and Chris Chandler lead worship. And hopefully one day when I get to heaven... Uh, I'll be able to sing like one of them. Uh, I'd, I'd even take singing like Chris Chandler if I got to heaven. I'd be all right with that. And uh, all I could think up here as well as, as Joseph was leading is that, um, is that Jonathan and Benj, the other two sons, have a long way to go before they're like Joseph Chandler for sure. And so y'all have some ground to make up. Probably the only way you can make it up after this morning's worship is to give your parents another baby, another grandbaby. It's probably the only way that that can happen. And so I'm just letting y'all know that. Uh, and uh, anyway, don't y'all love it when, when John is singing and he just stops and looks over at his son leading worship and this, this smile comes over his face like, I know what you're thinking. Go, boy. Go, boy. I know what you're thinking. I praise God for that family, every single one of you guys, uh, and, uh, and so many of you. Uh, here today. I'm thankful for you as well. And so we're in the book of John today, John chapter number 19. We've been in a series uh, about uh, that we've entitled Life Together. And so if you're visiting here today and, uh, and, and we're, we're not getting into that series today, we're taking a break or just calling it uh, calling that series done and over. And I want to really focus on the cross for two Sundays before Easter Sunday. If you're in here on Wednesday nights, you're going to hear some of the same message preached two Wednesday nights ago. This has really, really been fresh on my heart, uh, and so I wanted to bring this out uh, to the Sunday morning crowd. And Many of y'all can't get here on Wednesday nights. I get that, and so uh, a lot of you work on Wednesdays. I totally understand that. A lot of you work, uh, serve in Awana or in the choir or with our student ministry or preschool ministry, and so you're not in here on Wednesday nights either, and so this will be fresh to you. But I want us to look at John chapter number 19, in particular verse 38. We're going to get there, but I want to start in verse 34 and read to the end of the chapter. John chapter number 19, verse 34 to the end of the chapter. I think it's seven or eight verses, seven verses, and so we want to read that. And, uh, and so here's what the word says. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it, John's going to talk about himself in verse 35. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. So John is saying, hey, I was there. I saw these things. And of course, we know that he's there because Jesus looks at him a few verses before this. And when his mother Mary is there, he looks at John and says, uh, looks at Mary and says, woman, behold your son. And then looks at John and says, behold your mother. And so Jesus 
provides. Jesus takes care of his mother from the cross. I think that's beautiful. So John says, hey, I saw all of these things. I'm telling you the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of these bones will be broken. And again, one scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, and this is who I want us to look at for a few minutes. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly he was a disciple because he was afraid of the Jews. He asked Pilate, the Roman governor there, the one who was over the proceedings of the trial before he handed him over to the Jews to be crucified. He asked Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission and so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, y'all know Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. Him and Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea are very similar in the sense that they have been secret disciples. But they're not they're not in the closet now. They've come out with their faith in Christ. Nicodemus also who had come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We'll stop there this morning. I grew up at Concord Baptist Church right down the street. My mom and dad are in worship right down the street from us right now at Concord Baptist. I was there my whole life. Uh, I was uh, I, I, I joke about this all of the time. My mama had me on the front row on a Sunday morning. The pastor spanked my behind. That's how long I've been in church. Nine months before I was born, I've been in church. That's my story. Now, uh, I was very religious as a little boy uh, and not knowing who Jesus was. And so I went to church every time the doors were open as a little boy, but, but it wasn't until I was 10 years old that I gave my heart and my life to Christ. I was the kid who, who won the Bible drills. I was the kid on the stage uh, reciting Bible verses at VBS. Uh, in Sunday school, I remember Miss Brenda Hickey. She's still at church, probably there this morning. She, was, uh, she grew up Church of the Nazarene. She never cut her hair, made a vow to the Lord, which I think is beautiful that she made the vow to the Lord. I wish I had hair that I could make a vow to the Lord like Samson. I don't, but she didn't cut her hair. She wore it up in a huge bun. I would oftentimes say, Miss Brenda, please wear your hair down. She never would, but she was like a second mama to me. Miss Brenda Hickey had a list of Sunday school cards, questions, I don't know, about a hundred of them. And we would roll through these questions on Sunday mornings, oftentimes when we needed a little extra time in Sunday school to fill. I knew every single question to that uh, stack of cards that she had. It was a game to me. I, I was the kid that probably a lot of folks looked at uh, in the church, kind of in their mind. I was like, oh my goodness, here's Mike Stevens again. I was probably that kid, okay? When I got into middle school... I was a Sunday morning only believer. 
I look back on my testimony and I, and I really believe that God saved me when I was 10. But when I was older, an older teenager, God began to, to change my life. And really what happened, what was a, a wonderful catalyst to help change my life other than my mom and my dad and the prayers and the conversations that we would have over and over and over again other than, than all of the time they spent with me talking to me about the Lord Jesus. A wonderful uh, a person was brought into my life by the hand of God. His name was Tim Forehands. Tim Forehand recently died, 55 years old, from a heart attack, left behind, um, left behind his wife uh, and, uh, and stair-step children. He was a pastor, finally took a church pastoring down in South Alabama, and his wife Karen uh, and, and uh, two boys and a daughter. And I got to preach his funeral not too long ago. It was a huge honor for me to preach his funeral. Tim entered my life. He was probably in his mid-20s when he entered my life. I was probably 8th, ninth grade. At this point, I didn't go to church on Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights and being a part of a student ministry was not at all what I desired. Uh, I, I wanted to stay home on Sundays and watch uh, wrestling at the house. And so, so church really uh, took away on Sunday nights from me watching WCW back in the day. And so, uh, and so I, I wanted nothing to do with church. Tim came to my house with a deacon. They visited me, walked down the driveway. I was shooting basketball one, uh, uh, one Friday. I think it was a Friday or a Saturday. They walked down the driveway and they invited me to church. And I'll just be honest with you, my dad made me go on a Wednesday night. Can you believe that a parent would make their kids go to church? I'll be dead gum if that happens, right? What in the world are we coming to? That, that You mean kids can't make their own decisions about church? Right? And so my dad forced me to go to church, and, and I went on a Wednesday night to a very small group of students, and it was, it was life-changing for me. We sat around on, on ugly used couches, and we talked about the Word of God for 30 or 45 minutes, and I began to be introduced to some new people in my life, and my life began to change. Tim was a wonderful student pastor who was probably pretty rebellious. Let me give you an example. Uh, my friend, uh, who was a, is a former pastor, got to preach Tim's funeral as well. Craig Odom told the story one night. We're at a, we're at a, uh, at a lock-in. Praise God we don't do lock-ins anymore. I don't know how in the world we got away with lock-ins back then. Here's a great idea. Take, take two adults, 25 students, let them be in a church all night with no supervision, guys and girls whose hormones are raging. Does that sound really good to y'all? But there we were. Tim was overweight, which I loved about him because it spoke my language. He spoke my language. Late night trips to Waffle House when I was a teenager, talking about God, uh, just having an absolute blast with him changed my life. But I remember one night at a lock-in, Craig told this story. We couldn't find Tim, and it was really cold. I don't know, it was like that 3 a.m. mark where we're all looking around at one another, laughing about everything, and we couldn't find Tim forehand anywhere. And so Tim was a little bit rebellious, and so Tim never had any type of uh, uh, joy in, uh, in, in the, uh, the sacred cows of a Baptist church, right? The sacred cows of a Baptist church. Like, like when I got here to Union Hill, the sacred cow to this church was the greenery on stage. It looked like we were going to an African jungle back in those days. 
Anybody remember the greenery on stage? If we moved anything, maybe been a sacred cow. Not very many sacred cows at Union Hill. But there was a sacred cow at Concord Baptist. And it was the WEMU quilt. Anybody remember the WMU quilt? The hand, 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 hand quilted quilt, hand quilted quilt uh, of the WMU, and it hung, hung there at Concord Baptist, and, uh, and it's probably still there. And, uh, and by the way, just a total side note, isn't a quilt on a cold night just fantastic? Well, we couldn't find Tim. And Tim, being rebellious, had found a way to get that quilt down, and he snuggled up under that quilt, and he was fast asleep underneath the WMU quilt. Tim introduced me to this phrase, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, right? Tim was rough around the edges, but one thing about Tim forehand, and that church really understood and gave him so much grace in his 20s. One thing about Tim forehand is that he loved Jesus Christ, and he invested the gospel into us. And that small handful of students was just a wonderful place for my teenage years to grow into Christ. But what I found was, and I'm going to get to this sermon, what I found was is that when I got into 11th and 12th grade, teenagers, please look at me. What I found was is that I had a group of church friends and I had a group of school friends. I played football in high school. I wrestled in high school. I had this whole other group of friends that didn't go to church. And what I found was is I had church friends and I had friends that I did things on Friday night with and Saturday night. And it's not that I was doing anything uh, uh, bad or, or, or drinking with them at parties. In fact, some of the people that I went to high school with are in here now. And I can remember going to some parties with some of those guys and I wouldn't drink anything. In fact, somewhere in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, the vault of Jeff Coven is a picture that he often brings up to me. I'm at this party with Jeff Coven, and I'm not drinking. In fact, I'm sharing the gospel with someone who's dead now, by the way. And so I'm sharing the gospel at this party, and there's a snapshot taken, and the snapshot has me in the background, uh, or I may have been in the front ground, and someone's in the background, and the way that someone's in the background, they're holding a beer, okay? And the way it looks in the picture, I'm holding the beer. And Jeff frequently brings this picture up to me that he's going to pull this out one day. Well, cat's out of the bag. I just came out of the pulpit with it. And so, so watch this. It's not that I was not living for Christ around my school friends. I was just a secret follower of Jesus around them. And what began to happen is that my church friends and my school friends would get into the same area and they begin to clash. And now, what in the world am I going to do? Please hear me, students. The idea of living for Christ in front of people who do not care about Jesus and the pressure and the tension of that will never go away in your life. You take a stand now. Real men and women of God get into a place in their life where they love people that are around them who do not love Jesus. But when it gets time to draw the line, men and women of God, 
do not care about what someone thinks about them when they walk in Christ. Men and women of God do care what someone thinks about them and that fear comes up, but real men and women of God, they call out to the name of the Lord and they step past that fear and they live in what the Bible calls faith. This is what we have in the text, brothers and sisters. Verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea is a secret disciple. Let's talk about this man just for a moment. This is not Joseph, the father of Jesus. That's why they give this statement of Arimathea. It's a town a few miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, John is making a distinction here between Jesus' father, who's not here, by the way. Most people think uh, Joseph has passed away. This is a different Joseph. The book of Matthew, uh, chapter 27, tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. We know that he was wealthy because in that same text in Matthew chapter 27, the Bible says Joseph of Arimathea bought a tomb, a hewn-out-of-the-rock tomb. Somebody was telling me a couple of weeks ago it was probably his family tomb, and Joseph is uh, of Arimathea has this family tomb where his whole family could have been buried in there, but it was brand new. Your average country folk in the text would not have had the money to be buried in a tomb like this. And so Joseph had this tomb especially made. He was wealthy. The book of Mark tells us that Joseph is part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is equivalent to our Supreme Court. And so the Sanhedrin made uh, judgment calls on on, uh, on crimes that would have been committed in the Jewish community there in Jerusalem and in the countryside. They would have made, they would have made decisions on, uh, on court cases. They would have made decisions on, on understandings of the, of the book of the law, of the Old Testament. So, so here is Jesus preaching all around, and people are going, hey, this man is from God, this man is from God, this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah. The Sanhedrin's job is to, and that's why they're all in the book of John, is to tell everybody whether Jesus really is from God or not. Is this really the Messiah? And so they have wonderful seminary education, but they get schooled by the poor folk because they're so blinded by their intellect. They're so blinded by their education. They're so blinded by their wealth that they, they can't see past the nose on their face. They're whitewashed tombs, brothers and sisters. They look beautiful on the outside, but they're full of death and decay on the inside. They don't get it. They're supposed to tell people truth, but they don't understand it themselves. They are the blind leading the blind. So they are. That's what Jesus said. So Joseph of Arimathea is a part of this Sanhedrin group. He's rich. He's powerful. He has wisdom. He guides people for a living. He understands the Old Testament. And because of all of this, he's created much, much status. And it's taking this moment in John 19, it has taken three years for Joseph and Nicodemus to get to a place to where we see them in the public not being a secret disciple. Status, money, all of this is what's holding them back from letting go. Nicodemus fears, Joseph of Arimathea fears 
that if they follow Christ, all of their political and spiritual influence will not only go down the drain, but that they will be persecuted just like Jesus and his disciples because they're in on all the inside conversations. They know that the Sanhedrin wants to kill Jesus. And so they're listening to all of these things. In fact, when Nicodemus, you can get a progression of his faith because in John 3, he comes to Jesus by night. and John 7, they want to arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, we can't arrest Jesus. There must be witnesses to what he's done. This is unlawful. And so you can see Nicodemus progressing in his faith to stand up for Jesus but not really be a public follower. He's a secret follower. And so here is Joseph of Arimathea. He would have been on all of the inside conversations. He would have seen the miracles that Jesus has done. He would have been there at the mock trials. He would have been a part of all of this because he had great status. Can you feel the pressure that's involved in this? There's a wonderful show that me and Aaron watched the first season of. We have not watched the second or third seasons. I wish that we would have because we absolutely love the first season of it. It's called The Chosen. Many of you have seen The Chosen. And, uh, and in the first uh, season, they talk through Nicodemus. You can feel the pressure, the tension of what I'm talking about in Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they would have lost everything to follow Jesus. Their jobs, their status, their clout, their, 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 their power to make decisions, possibly even their wives, their family, uh, everything, everything about who they are, it would have truly been deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This would have had, for them to follow Jesus, they would have turned their back on everything that they thought had value. And the chosen gets to this. Now look, the chosen is creative. It's not following the scripture word, word by word. But what I do think is wonderful about this, these, these two episodes that I'm about to show you, clips of them, what I think is wonderful is that it's getting at the pressure that Nicodemus would have felt, the same pressure of Joseph of Arimathea. The first clip, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Let's watch a little bit of this uh, clip. Can we hit the lights back here? Uh, Y'all already got it. Y'all are good. What am I talking about? Y'all are on it. Let's watch just a little bit of this. No, that's the second clip. I want the first clip. The Eastern Slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe you are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. How is that belief going over in the synagogue? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. 
that is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, and she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I suffer there, Art. That there. which is born of the flesh is flesh. All right, so we have this setup. Nicodemus is talking to Jesus at night. You can feel it can feel the tension. Now, this is where the chosen goes off in a little creative direction because the chosen is going to hypothetically say, what would it be like if Jesus invited Nicodemus to be a disciple and it came time to load up and start the journey? What would it be like? And so here's the second clip as the disciples are getting ready to go on to their journey for the first time to follow Jesus. What would it be like if Nicodemus had got asked to go. You can feel the pressure, the tension of the text. Let's play that second clip. to follow so bad. Look at this. What is that? I don't know. Let's find out. Gold. A friend of mine left that for us. It's enough for two weeks of food and lodging. All he's got to do is step out. You came so close. You came so close. What do you mean? That's good right there. We need right to there. go for to make it to a camp in Tiberius by nightfall. Simon is correct. That's good, Art. Cool. Y'all would rather watch that than hear me preach. I get it. It's that good. It really is. It really is that good of a show. If, if we get into his shoes... Joseph and Nicodemus, if we get into their shoes, we know exactly what they're feeling. Have you ever been paralyzed by a fear of man issue? Proverbs chapter 28, verse 25 talks about the fear of man being a snare. I, I, I've been there. Where you allow someone or a group to force you into a position in life that you know is not right with God, but you dare not do anything to disrupt because you care what they think so much. 
Will you allow someone to have such a stronghold in your mind and in your heart that you know God is saying, move here, but you can't because of what someone may do or think or say. The fear of man is a snare. It traps us. Some characteristics of the fear of man is someone that is consumed by a worry of what someone will think. A deep rejection a deep fear of rejection from someone. You constantly want to impress someone or a group. You worry and fear about what that group will think about you. Teenagers, please hear me. It never changes. There always always is someone. There always is a group. If you don't begin to grab a hold of this right now in your Christian life, it will, come, it will constantly come back in your life. What someone thinks about you, what a group thinks about you, who cares? But when we are ensnared by that trap, it is so hard to get out of. And if you're in that trap, all I can tell you is, is that you pray and you read the word and you begin to care more about what God thinks about you than what someone who doesn't love about God thinks about you. The fear of man is an issue in so many people's lives. In fact, some of you want to follow Christ, but you're really afraid of what it would look like. Can I just go to church every once in a while and and, and might you be like my drug dealer and every six or eight weeks just give me a little hit and I go about my way? Can I do that? You can until you begin to get satisfied in Christ and you want more and more and more of Him. And when that begins to happen, you begin to understand that what these people think about me and all the fears that I have is not as valuable as my Lord and Savior Jesus. And so when we look at our text today, this is what's happening with Joseph and Nicodemus. It's what's happened to them. They begin to walk in faith for the first time in their life. Pilate is asked for the body. Joseph has no qualms about going to Pilate and asking for this body. Joseph gets to a place where he does not care what the rest of the Sanhedrin think about him. There has been secret devotion, and now there is public worship. In fact, that's exactly what happens. Secret faith or secret devotion, when it's real, begins to spill out into public worship. You say, how are they worshiping Jesus? They're worshiping Jesus because they show up at the cross. This is what's happening to them. Secret devotion. They cannot hold it in any longer and now they must walk in faith. It becomes an artesian well, John chapter 4. It it begins to spring up life. It cannot quit this well spring of public worship. This well spring to walk in faith. It becomes greater than the fear of what someone thinks. And so secret devotion spills over into public worship. I'll tell you how it spills over into public worship. It's the idea that these two individuals leave behind the old way of life. 
the Sanhedrin would have had responsibilities on Passover week. They would have been at the temple on Passover week. This is Passover week. Jesus is crucified on Friday morning. Dies the sinner's death on Friday. Put in the tomb Friday. In the ground three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's what the scripture teaches. Early on Sunday morning he rises from the grave. This is Passover week. Every year the Jews celebrate Passover. They still do today. Passover, it's remembering what happened in the Old Testament, right? In the book of Exodus when, when Moses and his people are gathered together in their houses. They paint the door frames, the doorposts of their, their house with the blood of the lamb. Miss Lorraine, you talked about this with our, with our fourth and fifth graders at your house uh, uh, Friday night. Uh, and, uh, and we had a wonderful time there as Lorraine uh, loved on our kids there at, at, at her house. This is, this is Passover. The death angel came through Egypt and passed over the people that were in the house with the doorposts painted. Uh, question, is the, heart of your, is the doorpost of your heart painted with the blood of the lamb? Uh, and so they passed over. And so every year the Jews would remember this wonderful rescuing of God in their life and their history. They still remember it today. This is Passover week when Jesus dies. He's the lamb. He's the lamb that's, that's slaughtered, right? And so the Sanhedrin, they would have had temple responsibilities. The Sanhedrin would not have been able to touch a dead body. If they touch a dead body, I believe they have to go through a week of cleansing rituals before they are qualified to go back to the temple. And so the greatest festival and feast of the year is Passover. Quite possibly millions of people in the city at this moment. And, G and Joseph and Nicodemus forfeit their rights to be a part of it in order to take the body of Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, Joseph and Nicodemus are two individuals that begin to walk in faith with God. They have seen Jesus die on the cross. What is the significance of Jesus dying? Well, I believe Joseph and Nicodemus understood the Old Testament that was pointing to Christ. I believe that they understood that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that they understood that God has come to establish a kingdom here on earth. Uh, and I believe that they understood that this kingdom will, will be ruled and reigned by Jesus Christ as as we walk under him, we will rule and reign with him. And I believe that they understood Jesus to be the one who would come and die for the sins of the world. And they put their faith in him to have eternal life. And they exchanged it all. Jesus came and died. The significance is, is that Jesus came and died to save us from our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3 He cleanses us of all of the terrible things that we have ever done. You say, what do you mean cleanses us? He takes the, the curse of sin away from us. We deserve death. Jesus took, uh, takes death from us. Jesus takes it all on his back. And according to verse 35 of the text, John 19, 35, John writes this so that we may believe. I'm going to close this thing down. Joseph, you guys can come on back up. John 19.35 says that John writes this so that we may believe. Believe. 
You know, I can believe about Jesus everything that's been said and my life not been changed. I can believe Jesus lived a, a great life. I can believe Jesus died on the cross. I can believe that he rose from the grave. And, and, and I can believe all of that. And then while I believe that, I still can hate people in my life. I can believe Jesus rose from the grave. I can still hold a grudge. I can believe that Jesus is coming back one day, but I, I still can be filled with pride and want to live my life the way I want to live. I, hey, hey, th- th- I'm talking about the religion of the South, brothers and sisters. Somebody posted up uh, last week this, this wonderful religion of the South post. Uh, you know, I can love God and not go to church. I can love God and rarely ever pray. I can love God and rarely ever read the Word of God. I can love God and it's just boom, 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 boom. I can love God and He can be my Savior and not give and not care about anything that He cares about. That is the religion of the South. That is a belief unto death. Bible talks about belief right here in John 19, 35. The Bible's talking about a belief that's life-changing. A belief that causes us to come out of being a secret disciple into public worship. Let me close. I'm done. Spring break is reminding me of when my kids are littler than they are now. Sawyer's 10, Sam's 7. Do y'all remember when your kids were learning how to swim? And do you remember Do you remember when you would get them in the pool at spring break down at the beach or you would get them in the pool in the summertime down at the beach and, and, and you're standing in the pool, I don't know, you're about six feet in, four feet in. You're like about right here. And I can see Sawyer on the edge of that pool. and She's, she's just on the edge. Some of y'all are scared I, I would fall right now. It would ruin the sermon. It would be very memorable though. And I could see her, and I could see her so scared, and she would just squat. I, my knees would totally pop out of place if I squatted like those kids did. I mean, butt all the way to the ground and knees up to her chest, just squat. She just couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And there was one summer where we tried and tried and tried. Aaron could give you the ages. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. And sometime between that summer and the following spring break, the desire to jump became greater than the fear. And it it was like the next time we were in the pool, she went from just barely jumping to daddy, get further out and way back here, and she's jumping. She's got all the faith in the world that nothing's going to happen to her, even though the water's too deep, even though she can't swim in those days. She just knows that Daddy's going to catch her, right? Better hear me this morning. When your love for God gets to a place that it overcomes the fear of what people think about you, all the fears that you have about following Christ, when your love, when the secret devotion gets to a place to where I just don't care about the fear anymore, I got to jump. bleeds over into public worship. It'll spill over into your family. It'll spill over into your marriage. It'll spill over into your children's lives. It'll spill over into your friendships. It'll spill over into your job. It'll spill over into your church life. It'll spill over to, into everything that you do. Secret devotion, when it's real, cannot help but be an artesian well to spring out of us comes out of us. It just comes out of us. My question is, how many secret followers do we have in the house today? God's calling you to jump. 
God's calling you to walk in faith. God's calling you to serve. If you're lost, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. It is if you call on the name of the Lord, He'll save you. If you're a follower in here, say, I do love Jesus. I know I'm saved. But i got to walk with Him where people see for the glory of the Lord God. If that's you, run to the Lord today. Run to the Lord today. Father God, we say thank you for your grace today, Father. I pray for anyone in this place who's struggling in their faith, God. Would you mend up their life, their heart right now, God. I pray for the one that you're calling to walk, to jump, a teenager, calling them forward to step out, to serve you, and to not care what people think. God, I pray that you would break the strongholds of the fear of man in our life. God, we are tired of caring what people think. Father, we care what you think. Help us to walk with you. Bless this invitation time in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Let's begin to sing how great our God is. If you need prayer this morning, the altar is certainly open for you. Lord God, bless this time in Jesus' name.